0: Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991.
1: to Boston,
0: Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance.
2: Good morning. It is 830 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom King. We are not on Wall Street today. We are in London The first of a week-long series of shows on the Brexit referendum. We'll have that for you every day on the program here. But we do keep track of what's going on in the United States, and our economic indicators are brought to you by Brooks Brothers Big Event. Their semi-annual sale is going on now through June 28th. Shop early for the best selection. Visit brooksbrothers.com to shop the entire collection or find the location closest to you, which you can do because you're not going to miss anything in the economy. There are no economic indicators but today. it's a busy week. We do have uh, Neil Kashkari, the Minneapolis Fed president, giving some uh, remarks on the banking system. And then tomorrow, a, uh, a person named Yellen, you may have heard of her? Yes. She goes up to Capitol Hill. Her uh, semiannual testimony on monetary policy and uh, the economy otherwise known as the, uh, formerly known as the Humphrey Hawkins Report. It was brought forward by about a month because um, your representatives in Congress want to leave Congress early this year to get out onto the campaign trail. Yeah, yeah, and uh, if if it were at its normal time in about the third week of July, it would be conflicting with the presidential nominating yeah, conventions. Yeah. So um, <clears> we get yeah. Humphrey Hawkins tomorrow. Uh,
3: risk on very quickly before we get to Ms. Swank and Mike, I'll let you uh, bring in Diane. Uh, to talk about the U.S. economy. Let me frame Sterling. Sterling went, in the latest bout of a Brexit, from a 147.28, 147.16, all the way down near 140. We've made back a good 80% of that in three sessions. At 146.47, Mike, two standard deviations of remain strength. Is a stick above here, 147.96, rounded up to 148. We need to get to a 148 to really show a massive shift in trend. We're not there yet.
2: Yeah, well, I would warn you, if we get to a 148, they're coming for your company credit card while we're over here. That's <laughs> yeah. true. That would be true. We, we've, we, we're not helping. The question
3: is, is the they the family or is the <laughs> they Reto keeper well, of the you, Amex? You, you're in trouble
2: <laughs> both ways. <laughs> Diane Swank is in Chicago. She's not over here in London spending money, uh, but hopefully she's stimulating the U.S. economy. Of course, she's the founder of DS Economics. She joins us now. Uh, Diane, it's an interesting week because we do get an early look at what Janet Yellen thinks, but we get this just a week after she told us what she thought after the the Fed vote. Um, Is there anything she can say that will satisfy anybody about anything at this point?
4: Uh, that 's a good question Mike. I mean unfortunately, I think Janet Yellen is in a painted herself into a very difficult corner at this moment in time, clearly the Brexit vote did weigh heavily on the Fed, and uncertainties about what growth abroad meant weighed heavily on the Fed, but there's also a real credibility issue going on. She had, you know, we had Bullard out last week saying, you know, he sort of put his one, one and done for the whole rate forecast, because he doesn't think the rate forecasts are very useful. That rebellion um, within the Fed, too, about the dots, I'm on a dump the dots campaign, because I don't think they're very useful anymore, I think they've lost their use, but I think. They- that credibility issue is one in an election year where people's emotions are already high. It's going to be tough for her on the Hill this week.
2: Yeah, um, members of Congress, I mean, if they want to be rude, they can point out that the Fed has had a very hard time uh, coming up with rude, an economic forecast. They to
4: be rude. That's how they get on TV. Remember
2: that? <laughs> that I, I was being polite about aisles, it.
4: I know. Both sides of the aisles have been very rude to Yellen. When,
2: when they when they are rude, we we can hope that the comedy rude, yeah. we're, seeing, a,
4: yeah. we're seeing
2: we're seeing a little bit better attitude here in uh, in the UK. Uh, maybe that will transfer across the pond. But uh, when they get up there and ask her questions uh, and say, "Why can't you ever get your forecast right?" What does she say?
4: I think this is the time where she needs to start saying, you know they, the Fed needs to pivot from data dependence, which includes forecasts and say we're doing the best we can. the world's an uncertain place, and at the end of the day, the Fed is reacting the best they can to incoming information they're not um, to be able to manage expectations, it's already been clear they've been unable to manage market expectations because, frankly, the market has been better than the Federal Reserve at predicting what the Fed would do. And it it brings in an issue of credibility. It's not that necessarily the Fed is always wrong, although they have been consistently under-forecasting their ability to raise rates. And that's critical because when you tell the markets and Congress that you think you're going to raise rates and then you don't, it comes back to haunt you. And I think the Fed needs to get away from what they had hoped would be forward guidance. Right. And I think that's a critical issue. Communications are not at their best right now anywhere. And I think we've seen that. The political environment around the globe is heated and that's not productive. Yeah. What we need to do is ranch thing, rank things down a bit, ranch things down a bit. And that includes what we expect of the Fed in terms of, you know, they're not some ivory tower, and they don't have all the answers.
3: Diane, um, we're we're totally focused on those international political events here in London. I'm interested in what no one's expecting, which is a breakout, I sound like Jim Morrison of the Doors, breakout to the other side. The idea of the Atlanta GDP index or something else breaking out of that 2.6, 2.7 percent range, is that on your radar That things can become simply more optimistic.
4: I, I wish it was right now, um, and boy would I love to be wrong. Uh, I think we're cu- unfortunately caught in about a two to two and a quarter percent rut. We're gonna snap back in the second quarter, but we've got this really bad seasonal pattern mm. that's gone on for a long time with a weak first quarter then feeding our fears of what the second quarter is gonna look back and it comes back in the second quarter and then we slow down again. And I think the reality <clears throat> is that we are dealing with an economy. You know, I, I just wrote a piece saying it was no joyride. Right. So I'm from Detroit, and, you know, what do I feel about the economy? It's like it's like recovering after a multi-car crash. Our car is fixed, our our wounds have healed, but the trauma is still there, and that's global in scope, and that's the part that we need to deal with. And policy, our doctors in Washington haven't helped much with that.
3: Right. Let's come back with Diane Swank, DS Economics. Lots to talk about on the American economy, including her Chicago Cubs. Uh, Futures up 27. Dow futures up 216.
2: This hour of surveillance brought to you by Volvo Cars White Plains. Visit volvocarswhiteplains.com. Here's Michael Barr with news headlines.
1: Mike, Tom, thank you very much. The Senate will hold procedural votes today on four gun control provisions. It comes more than a week after a massacre at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Meanwhile, the first inside look at the shooting will come today when the FBI releases a partial transcript of the conversations between the gunmen within the Pulse gay nightclub and Orlando police negotiators. Federal investigators have been promising more insight into the tragedy that killed 49 people and wounded 53 others. The Southwest is under a stifling heat wave. Dr. Eric Nastro at California's Northridge Hospital says people have to stay safe in the dangerous triple-digit temperatures. You
0: want to do your best to basically avoid... Uh, staying in the sun if possible. You want to hydrate. And if you anticipate doing any physical exertion outside
3: or being outside in the hot sun, you want to hydrate early and often.
1: In Phoenix, it hit 118 degrees yesterday. A solar plane is another step closer to reaching its historic goal of circling the globe. The Solar Impulse 2 aircraft took off early this morning from New York's Kennedy Airport to begin a four-day trip across the Atlantic Ocean. The plane is scheduled to land in Seville, Spain. Global news, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom?
2: Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Land Rover Parsippany Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with John Stasher.
0: Thanks, Mike. Cavs and Warriors went to last night's Game 7, having scored the exact same number of points over the first six games, but none of those six were won by single digits. Game 7, finally a close game, tied in the final minute. Kyrie Irving hit the big shot, and the Cavs won 93-89, to led by LeBron James, 27 points, a triple-double. Big block late in the game with the score tied. Draymond Green led the Warriors with 32, but Steph Curry and Klay Thompson together made only a third of their shots. Golden State, after coming back from 3-1 down in the West Finals, the first to ever blow a 3-1 lead in the NBA Finals. Lost two straight at home. They only lost two home games all regular season. Cavaliers first to win a finals, game seven on the road since 1978. The championship, the first for Cleveland in any sport since 1964. The parade is Wednesday. Dustin Johnson took off a controversial one-shot penalty ruling, won the U.S. Open at Oakmont by three shots. Johnson gets his first major after having finished in the top ten 11 times, including being a runner-up at last year's Open. Yankees unable to complete the four-game sweep in Minnesota, beaten by the Twins 7-4 to to again drop back under 500. Nathan Navaldi couldn't hold a lead. Brian McCann, homer twice in the loss. Mets never in it. Lost 6-0 to Atlanta. Had just one hit off Julio Teran. An embarrassing home sweep to the lowly brave. The Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stasheller.
3: John, thanks so much. Michael McKee, have we yet to speak about the powerhouse of the West, the San Francisco Giants? Uh, they Eight are, in a row. 6-29 ball.
2: They are playing very well, and it... <laughs> It just uh, raises the question. I mean, obviously, it's a long way to go, but they've won every other World Series for the last six years, and this would be their year again if that were the retro
3: I may have to break out the new Giants baseball cap. I mean, the retro jerseys, Jake Peavy, among others, donning them, they're gorgeous. I mean, we have a plethora the Cubs,
5: the oh, Red we've Sox, got to ask the Nationals. About
3: that, yes. The Giants baseball is upon us from
2: London on baseball, Bloomberg Surveillance. The Sports Report and Tom's comments brought to you by Land Rover Parsippany. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverParsippany.com or 1-800-FIND-4WD. Land Rover, above and beyond.
5: And I'm Karen Moscow. This update is brought to you by ETFX Exchange. ETF Exchange 16, BNY Mellon's annual ETF symposium, September 19th to the 21st in Dana Point, California. A must attend for RIA. Space is limited, so register now at bnymellon.com slash ETF. Dell agreeing to sell its software unit to buy out firm Francisco Partners Management and the private equity arm of activist investor Elliott Management and federal mogul home- Holdings' largest shareholder, activist investor Carl Icahn, raising his offer to buy the remaining 18% of the auto parts maker. Icahn Enterprises raising its bid to $8 a share from the $7 a share offered in February. Global equities are rallying. The pound strengthening the most since 2008 on signs the campaign for the U.K. to stay in the E.U. is gaining momentum. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-Mini futures up 26 points. Dow E-Mini futures up 217 NASDAQ E-Mini Futures up 56. The DAX in Germany is up 3.7%. Ten-year Treasury down 14.32. seconds. The yield 1.65%. Yield on the two-year 0.71%. NYMEX crude oil up 1.8% or 88 cents to 48.86 a barrel. COMEX Gold is down tenths percent or $9.30 to 12.85.50 an ounce. The Euro, $1.1348. The British pound, $1.4642. And the Yen, 104.50. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike.
3: Karen, thanks so much. From London, it is 848 on Wall Street.
0: The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists.
6: I'm Paula Dwyer, an editor with Bloomberg View. Donald Trump says Muslim immigrants, and even their second and third generations, are unwilling or unable to integrate into American society. The evidence for such a sweeping statement is hard to come by. The U.S. Census Bureau is barred from asking about religious affiliation. Other surveys, however, such as those done by the Pew Research Center, fill in some of the blanks, and they tell us that Trump is just plain wrong. Muslims arrive in the U.S. with higher education and income levels than other immigrant groups and are assimilating at about the same pace. Their integration also happens faster in the U.S. than in Europe, those surveys show. In one important area, Muslim assimilation is exemplary. A higher percentage become American citizens than other immigrant types, 70% versus 50%. Not only is Trump wrong, his words are dangerous if they encourage violence or discrimination. If employers refuse to hire Muslims or if neighbors shun them, he may be slowing down the integration he so desires. Donald Trump needn't worry that Muslims will be any more dangerous to the U.S. than his German-born grandparents were more than a century ago. I'm Paula Dwyer, an editor with Bloomberg View. For more Bloomberg commentary, please go to BloombergView.com or ViewGo on the Bloomberg Terminal.
0: This has been Bloomberg View.
6: And Bloomberg View
3: commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays
6: on Bloomberg Radio.
3: Michael McKee and Tom Keen in London, in Chicago, Diane Swank, DS Economics. Diane, in one or two or three conversations in these interviews that we do, you can hear Little nuance is the difference between Europe and America. The laureate, Christopher Pissarides, was on today with huge value. He is asking his United Kingdom to not leave the EU out with a letter from 10 economists today in support of Prime Minister Cameron. But in the discussion, Professor Pissarides made real clear that Eastern Europeans do the help in the United Kingdom, we don't say that in America. We have a different language, a different discussion of our deciles of income. How are our lower deciles of income do, doing? The bottom decile, the minimum wage, and the group above them.
4: Well, certainly they've not been doing well, and we have income inequalities and um, a lack of education in some areas within both the U.S. and Europe that is part of where this debate is coming from and the frustration we're seeing. Sort of correlation does not apply causality, but people want scapegoats, and they look to their immigrant populations as a scapegoat because they tend to be self-chosen and more educated and come in, and there is that tension there. On the lower um, end of the wage um, spectrum, what we are seeing is there has been a movement up um, at the state and local level. Minimum wages have finally hit a tipping point in very large population areas and very large population states, and we've seen an acceleration in those wages um, at the very lowest rungs. That doesn't mean they're going moving up rapidly enough to, say, pay for themselves um, in the way that they'd like to live in a middle-class income style. That's not where they're going, but they are moving up. What I worry about is the next wave, which is structural in nature, and that will be um, what I'm likening to the restructuring of manufacturing, the restructuring in retail, the move to the hybrid of bricks and clicks and the move away from bricks in general. A lot of the real estate in the retail sector, you're going to see a lot of people currently employed in retail lose their jobs. Now, many people may correlate that with the higher minimum wage. That is not really what's going on. We have a secular change in retail that I think is very important to watch going forward as well.
2: Well, what happens uh, to the economy? I mean, we've seen this globalization angst developed in the United States uh, in, in a great measure on the back of the manufacturing job losses we've seen. Now you start to add retail uh, into that, then uh, you, the American people get – where do they go from there?
4: Well, it is something that it really highlights the one issue that economists keep getting back to, and that was the need to invest in human capital. We did not educate people in this country to take the jobs that they needed to take. There's a huge mismatch on jobs out there. We did not educate people to be employed in a globalized economy. And we neglected our investment in human capital, and it shows. And I think that's where the issue lies. What we often forget, though, is when the economy, when we had labor markets that were so tight that unemployment fell so low, our ability innovate around skill shortages in the late nineteen nineties. That's when things like the fast food restaurants, instead of just printing the name of what you had to you were ordering, the people behind the counter could push an icon. The ability to innovate around those skills levels, they didn't even have to know English to take an order. All they had to do was punch a picture of something to take an order. That is what we've not seen of late, and I think that's the next step is not only do we need to invest in human capital for the long term, in the short term, we're one of the few countries in the world that has shown a a capability to actually innovate around people's own skill shortages and keep them employed. And I think the ability, we all know how to use a smartphone now, and that doesn't matter what income strata you're in or what educational level you're in, and that gives us an opportunity to move to the next level without destroying all the jobs out there, just creating new jobs in different areas with an ability to innovate around the fact that they don't have maybe all the skills that they once Mm. needed for those jobs.
2: On January 20th or January uh, 21st, uh, President Clinton or President Trump calls you up and says, Diane, I need a chief economic advisor, somebody to run my council uh, uh, of economic advisors, and I want from you one thing we can do, one thing we must do to break out of this uh, new normal low growth path. What would you recommend?
4: Well, there's no one silver bullet or we would have already shot it, but fiscal policy has been neglected. Corporate tax reform, low-hanging fruit, bipartisan support. Income tax reform, also low-hanging fruit needs to be done. We need to get through this. But more importantly, we need to invest in infrastructure. And to do it when interest rates are still low in the United States, to come up with a fiscal plan, we've already had them out there. They did it in 2010, bipartisan plans to reduce the deficit over the long term, but invest today. Even infrastructure as simple as our roads and our bridges, which let me tell you, even though the Cubs are doing great in Chicago, the bridges are still crumbling in Chicago and the roads still have a lot of potholes in it. That undermines our productivity Mm -hmm. in this country. So I think first thing out is to think about infrastructure investment and those reforms and some of those reforms, believe it or not, even in this stalemated Congress can be done.
3: Where are we on credits for investment? I guess it's an early 60s idea. Mike may be wrong on that, but uh, Dr. Swank, where are we on, st- on stimulating or incentivizing investment beyond infrastructure?
4: We well, you know that's where the tax code had gone and it's one of the reasons why we're not uncompetitive now is because of all the deductions we put in to stimulate investment. We had to raise tax rates so that they're no longer competitive with the global economy. And so I think one of the things we do need to do and we've seen businesses sign on on this as well. The business roundtable in Washington, John Engler, who's head of that, who I know, they are now behind this as well, is eliminating and decomplicate, taking the complications out of the tax code and all those specific incentives and making it cleaner so we make economic decisions going forward without all the sort of special – once you start putting those incentives in, unfortunately, too many special interest groups get involved, and they become distorted incentives. I think the other side of the game is what we've seen in the the individual tax structure. We do know it's not bad to have lower capital gains tax rates. It's not bad to have lower dividends tax rates. We want that in investment. However, it is bad when people aren't engaging in investment or when returns are so low that companies are buying back stock and issuing mm. dividends to satisfy people in their search and their reach for yield rather than investing in their own company. Well, and I think that's where we're at.
3: Diane Smark, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning from uh, Chicago. A look at the americas it It's nice, Mike, to get away from Brexit remain for a bit.
2: We should uh, We should yeah. point out that the Ricketts family did take advantage of low interest rates to rebuild infrastructure. They've rebuilt Wrigley Field. I mean, they're in the process of... Uh, bringing it up to uh, yeah. 20th century standards, and then they can work on the 21st. In, in a
3: shout-out to any of you worldwide that want to see a rebuild. I would wander down Yawkey Way. What
2: they have done to rebuild. Always comes back to the Red Sox. What they
3: have done to rebuild Fenway Park's got to be the example for any sports stadium in the world. You
2: like, you love to see, you know, the Red Sox and the Cubs, the oldest stadiums in Major League Baseball, and instead of replacing them, they had the courage, courage, kept them to
3: do it. We are in London, waxing nostalgic on Major League Baseball. Michael McKee and I all week.
4: Hope you enjoy it. Bloomberg surveillance.